Hey, this is Brian Caber. You're listening to Left Coast Pirates. Make sure you tune in. Seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Guarded by Ochefu. Gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around it in. And a foul. Whitehead ties the game. Pow from Trenton. Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes. Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? I'm doing good, Tommy. I'm, I'm waiting for you to ask me if I'm excited. I got, you got this shtick going, and I, I don't even know how to respond anymore. So, so all right, here, here we go. A- am I excited today? How can I not be excited when we started this podcast, we had a list of guys that we wanted to potentially interview for our summer series. And the guy that we're going to interview today is on the list of the holy grail of guys that we would be honored to interview. So the, to have the pleasure to interview Andrew Gaze, renowned superstar, FIBA Hall of Famer, and a member, a integral member of the 1989 National Championship runner-up team, I got nothing else to say. How can you not be excited to do this interview? I just feel like this is some mic drop moment, Mike. I mean, it's funny, you know, growing up a Seton Hall fan, 14 years old, I'm watching him in a national championship game. Everybody was excited about him. He was a great player. And we know about his history. We know what he's done. But then when we start doing the research, the numbers, they're astronomical. It just blows you away. Well, it's, it's not just that. I mean, if you actually go and, and Google Andrew Gaze, yeah, you're going to find about all of his statistical accolades, but you're also going to see all the media stuff that he's done, whether it be an article reminiscing about the Seton Hall Pirates, whether it be a podcast that he's been interviewed on, or even a podcast that he's hosting with one of his former ball players uh, and, and ex-coaches. He is an ambassador for the game. And to just sit back and listen to his stories, it's enjoyable. You know, he, he dives into the minutia of the game. He gets involved in the, the passion and the emotion of the stories. So to talk to him about the 89 experience at that level, yeah, of course I'm excited. He is a five-time Olympian and second all-time in points scored at the Olympics. A two-time NBL scoring champ, earning seven NBL MVPs and his first all-time in scoring. Three-pointers and assists in NBL history. Named one of FIBA's 50 greatest players in 1991 and was inducted in their Hall of Fame in 2013. Played for the Pirates in the legendary 1988-89 season, averaging 13.6 points per game and four and a half rebounds per game. Was named Western Regional NCAA Tournament MVP as the Pirates made the national championship game. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates <laughs> Live, Andrew Gaze. Andrew, <laughs> how are you today? 
G'day, Tom. Hi, Michael. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Gee, that's a uh, I feel special with that pumped up welcome that you're able to provide me. That's fantastic. I'm gonna have to send the paramedics over to Tom's house. I think he was losing <laughs> yeah, his breath there, right? That was a pretty long he's... rap sheet. No, it's uh, it's nice. It's always nice to uh, hear some of your uh, achievements read out like that. So it's uh, it's a good thing. Thanks very much, Tom. Well, once again, Andrew, thank you for joining the show. No, it's a pleasure. It's, I always love reflecting back on a uh, an incredible time, and and um, it's uh, it's it's something here in Australia that they've come to know my association with Seton Hall, but in general, they, they probably don't have a, a true appreciation for uh, NCAA basketball and the journey that, that we were on. They, they know it was something unusual, but they don't necessarily appreciate it. And they certainly don't have a lot of insight into uh, the university itself. So it's, it's, it's great to catch up and reminisce. Andrew, we're getting old out here too, man. They, they don't remember 89 too much here in New Jersey either. Come on. <laughs> oh, no, that's a setback. We, uh, hopefully they, they, we can jog some memories then because it was a, an incredible time. And, and, and one of the beauties of it all for me was just to see the way in which the, the whole community was transformed. Uh, at the start, we weren't really predicted to, to do too much. And the program had been okay. It wasn't necessarily terrible, but never reached any great heights uh, in, in recent history. Uh, but then to see what the the way in which everyone got behind our success and and jumped on the bandwagon, we we welcomed everyone on the uh, Seton Hall Pirates bandwagon because it just made for a really fun ride. Well, before we kind of get into those stories and go down memory lane, we want to always kind of check in with our guests. We've been doing that all summer. Obviously, we have the COVID nineteen pandemic. So, how are things yeah. with you and the family? Yeah, we're okay. Our our country has been very vigilant in battling the the uh, the pandemic. Uh, a lot of the country was in lockdown. Uh, now, most of the country is has some level of freedoms. They're, they're, everyone's restricted to their states primarily. There's very little interstate travel. Um, the state where I'm from is still under pretty significant lockdown. We're only allowed to, out of our house two hours a day. And, um, and we've been in that mode for the last six weeks. We're slowly coming out of it now. Uh, we're still concerned because... I mean, this will sound silly because I, I do see some of the stuff that goes on in the United States. But uh, <laughs> overnight, we had in our state uh, of, you know, five million, four or five million people, uh, we had uh, 12 new cases uh, of, of coronavirus and, and we're still a little nervous. So I think we have a slightly different approach to what um, our good friends in the United States and many other parts of the world are taking. And it's, it's come with significant consequences as well. There's a lot of economic hardship going on but uh hopefully we we save some lives and make sure we all stay healthy it's just my it's just mind-boggling i'm kind of sitting here and it's always interesting to see what other parts of the world are doing relative to the u.s we had remus caucanus and patrick out on the show recently also you know in international settings and the yeah. quarantine there has been pretty effective you just you shot out some numbers about 12 new cases <laughs> we have 27,000 reported cases in Australia so far with only, you know, a little bit under a thousand deaths just in San Diego alone, 45,000 cases. I mean, yeah. what you guys are doing is so far ahead of the curve. It's, it's mind boggling. It is, but it, you got to sort of see both sides of the argument as well, because um, it, it does come with incredible sacrifice. The, the, the way in which we've been locked up here in the state of Victoria, it's, there's a lot of agitation about uh, civil liberties and, the freedoms that, that uh, we should be entitled to. But uh, I think that um, in hindsight, it's going to sit well because uh, at the end of the day, uh, people are dying. 
And I, I take a really selfish approach to, to the policies that are put in place because my, my parents are in that really high risk elderly category. And, um, and, and, you know, I understand that, and, and me, my, even my own situation, uh, a lot of economic hardship that you've got to go through. And there are many businesses that will not survive. And it's, it's, that's terrible. But we live in a really wealthy country. And I think the onus is on uh, our country to make sure that we support those going through hardship in order to save people's lives. Now, I'm sure we don't want to get into the, all the politics of, of, of COVID-19, but it is when you see the, the death rates and, um, you know, here in Australia, and, and I don't say this disparagingly other than just as an observation, but when we look at the numbers and over 200,000 people dying in the United States, it's gut-wrenching. Uh, you know, we feel absolutely. for you. And, and, and hopefully hopefully uh, we get through this sooner rather than later. Well, I mean, well, every, every part of the country is facing its own challenges. I mean, you guys even had the fires earlier in 2000. Oh, so, I mean, right? Horrific horrific fires and um on top of that you know we just come out of that fire season and then of course we go into this pandemic but hey i know you guys are in the southern or in the uh, the west coast of the united states and uh i look at the news there and in california you're dealing with some pretty harsh fires as well so um hearts go out to you guys because uh we we were going through those same hardships not too long ago yeah 2020 has not been a good year but andrew you mentioned shit house you mentioned that you can't get out of the house for more than two hours a day. I mean, if you've listened to any of our podcasts, Mike has been mm. sitting there complaining about being stuck <laughs> in the garage every week he's talking about it. So I guess, you know, even the best of us aren't immune to a little cabin fever, but it seemed like yes. you in particular seemed to deal with it a little better. I mean, early on in the pandemic, we saw mm. the Gaze Clan do a little TikTok oh, yes. dance video. Where, <laughs> yes. Wearing a Seton Hall t-shirt, I might add. Oh, my word. Yes, Who would have known that someone could have such fantastic moves on the court and that translate <laughs> to the <laughs> dance floor, Andrew? No. Well, I, I tell you what, we, you, I think you guys have the same show. I don't know if it's called the, the same, but we have a, uh, a program called Dancing with the Stars. And many years ago... I was actually one of the celebrities uh, that, that appeared on that. I, I didn't win it, but I went a lot further than I, I thought. And if you saw me dance, it really does put into question the validity of the competition because <laughs> no good. Very little rhythm, no timing. But that was one of those ones. I, I do a little bit on Twitter and I've recently got involved in um, Instagram, but I'm not huge on social media But because we've locked up so much. Um, you, you start to explore different things. And, and I wasn't totally across what TikTok was all about. It was my kids that, that said, uh, come on, dad, let's have a bit of fun. And uh, every Saturday night we, we have dress ups, we do different things. And on that particular Saturday, we were involved in a, they were getting me to do this TikTok dance. It took me a little while to figure out the steps and I didn't think anything of it, but then they posted it. And probably 12 hours later, I've got all these people calling me up. Uh, either abusing me for being a knucklehead or, or congratulating me on throwing myself under the bus and making a fool of myself. Well, look, I'll, I'll promise you this, Andrew. There's nowhere close to 133,000 viewers out there that want to see any dance moves <laughs> that I have. So, so you're you're doing more than okay. All right. <laughs> no, no, it was uh, it was good fun. Hey, just on a side, little sidebar, because I'm sure you guys are aware of um, when I was doing Dancing with the Stars. One of my claims to fame is that. Uh, there are other celebrities involved. And one of the other dancers on my uh, series was um, 
was Thor, was uh, Chris Hemsworth. Oh, really? So oh, wow. I got to know him and I danced against him. And just, you know, it's a it's a little sidebar. It's, apologies for getting a little self-indulgent <laughs> no, here. No, but, please. Uh, <laughs> but, That's what we're here for. But, but I finished fourth. And the great Thor, the man himself, the Marvel legend, uh, finished fifth. So uh, <laughs> I was able to get over the top of, uh, of Thor himself. Andrew patting himself on the back early in the That's podcast it. here, folks. Well, I, I bet when you were growing up as a kid hanging around Albert Park Basketball Stadium, you never thought you'd end up becoming this iconic sports figure, or better yet, just iconic celebrity in Australia that you become today. Uh, well, it's I always had ambitions of playing basketball, but when I was growing up uh, in the in the 70s and 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 early 80s, basketball was nowhere had nowhere near the level of recognition that it has today. I was just fortunate that I was born into a basketball family in a basketball environment, so it was it was very much accustomed to, to to me. But when I was going through those formative years, not in my wildest imagination did I ever think that you could uh, play basketball as a profession. It was just because the, the the game was just not that popular. When I was in primary school and early days of high school, a lot of people didn't even know, like when the school teacher says, well, what sports do you play? And I say, I want to play basketball. A lot of my classmates didn't even know what it was. They thought we have a, a game that you guys may not be familiar with. It's called netball. And it's it's predominantly a female sport, but it was one that that, that has similarities to, to basketball. Everyone, oh, there's a bit of a cross between that. And they really didn't know enough about it. So it was... It was, it was um, unusual the 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 way in which this sport became so popular over a relatively short short period of time that allowed me the opportunity to uh to to come through a period where the game did become more professional what about the the setup though i mean i've heard in many of your write-ups and many of the podcasts that you've done you basically were living in this sports complex environment yeah. because your father was basically the GM for the Victorian Basketball Association. So, I mean, I've heard numerous times, I couldn't walk to school without passing by a basketball court. Yeah, it was just a, a real unique environment because um, back in the late 50s, there was these old Commonwealth Army warehouse storage facilities and they were no longer required by the government. And the, uh, the local council of the day, they decided to transform those old Army warehouse storage facilities into sports complexes. And one of them became a basketball stadium. One of them became a badminton. Another one was table tennis. And another one was squash. And then uh, alongside this sort of uh, this facility was this old paddock out the back, which was converted into a, a Australian rules football field. And then right next to that, uh, in that process of development, there was a 18-hole golf course developed. So it was this, this beautification process that was going on. And... Basketball, in their wisdom, when they were making this conversion of this, I mean, this was an asbestos-filled ceiling. I mean, it's one of those ones that it was not this luxury sports complex you see today. But in the process of being converted, they decided to build a little manager's residence that was attached to this building. And my dad was the manager of this facility. And because of that, uh, I lived in this little cottage that was attached to this stadium. Uh, um, that had a nine court that was converted into a nine court basketball stadium. But above and beyond that, I also got to experience all these other sports. And basketball was my true love. My dad was uh, was an Australian coach at the time, so I had this uh, great guidance to help me through. But it, as I reflect back on it, the opportunity to experience all those different sports, I think, had a 
significant impact on me because, oh yeah, I was tall, you know, 201 centimeters, which in your language, I think is, I think is about six, seven, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, but I wasn't blessed with any great athleticism or, you know, I, I didn't have great physical gifts other than my size, as you could see by my dancing. But, um, <laughs> but the um, the fact that I got to experience and experiment with all those different sports, I think, really helped in my development. But there had to have been some point through all these years as growing up, picking up the basketball, walking through the courts, playing late yeah. at night, that you kind of the light bulb went off and said, "Hey, I'm pretty good, and I can compete at a high level." When when did that kind of epiphany finally occur, where you're like, "This is what I'm going to do professionally." Yeah, a little later than what a lot of people think because I love the game and I played it and I was playing it virtually every, like you said, because the environment I was living in every single day, I was exposed to the sport. Uh, but I wasn't, I never really started to make um, progress where amongst my peers, I was considered one of the, the better ones until I was about 15. Uh, but but the, from the time I was 15, my transformation was pretty quick because then by the time I was 17, I was in the Australian team. So I went from just someone that was perhaps a late, a relatively late developer, growing into my body, understanding, uh, you know, physically getting a little bit stronger. Uh, once that maturity and the hormones kicked in, then I made uh, quicker progress than a lot of others. And um, yeah, then it took off from there. But even with that, even when I was started playing, and by the time I was 18 or 19, I was playing elite well, in Australian terms, elite level basketball playing in our highest league. But even back then, we were ranked amateurs. We weren't getting paid. Uh, we, we, we were, you know, it wasn't until um, the really mid-90s that we that started to, to be any sort of significant income where you consider yourself a professional. Well, you said you were playing in that elite level and you were showing elite level skills. I mean, as you mentioned, 18 years old, you won NBL Rookie of the Year, almost scoring 30 points right out the gate. 20 years old, you were first team all NBL. And by 21, you scored a record for a season where you averaged 44 points a game. Now, what did it feel like knowing that there's a good shot of you putting 50 in at any given night. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because I look back on it now and like yourself, Tom, you, you look at the stats and you see this anomaly, you see this 44 points a game, and you go, oh, crikey, what the hell's going on there? <laughs> um, and, and, and right now, I actually think of it and I, I puff my chest out and say, oh, yeah, and I'm not going to pull you back. But unfortunately, the reality of it is, is I don't really have fond memories of that time because we were lousy we our team we were playing in the professional league and we had a horrific year our two imports we had two american players they had to leave halfway through the season and, and it was just and we i think in that season we only won three games so it was wow. it was one that uh i think you reflect back on individually and like i say you look at the stats and and perhaps uh give yourself a little bit of a tick but Deep down in my heart, I know that it wasn't one of the more memorable things. When you're in those grooves and the shots are dropping, it, it is the holy grail. It is an unbelievable feeling that you, you can have. So individually, you get those intrinsic rewards that you feel good about yourself, but it's, it's undermined by the lack of team success. And when you're not having team success, those individual accolades or those individual statistical um, uh, feats they really don't mean as much as what they do as when you're winning. 
So normally what happens is when a young kid is putting up those kind of numbers in high school, that kind of transitions to their recruitment. And Tom and I start asking about, all right, who started yeah. talking to you? But in your case, it's a little bit different. In 1986, the Australian national team comes over to the U.S. and you guys start playing a handful of exhibition games against the Big East schools. And P.J. Carlissimo was quoted as saying, he goes, I mean, it was ridiculous. He scored 40-something like four times in eight days. I just had a hunch that he could play in the league. And I'm, I'm pretty sure at that point you knew you could play in the league too, but you didn't have any desire to do so. Why? Well, I did have any desire, and I actually had a desire even before that. Uh, there, were, there were a few schools that American players had come to Australia and they've gone back to their former coaches and go, mate, you want to have a look at this guy's kid. He's running around, he's putting up some numbers. And there were a few uh, schools that would call. And for me, it was more about my boyhood dreams. And and when I put the, my head on the pillow when I was a youngster and, and I can remember those, those first times when you think of those fanciful dreams of doing a heroic deed, uh, mine were always based around sport. And they always had an Olympic um, uh, theme. And that was primarily because of my dad. My dad competed at, played at three Olympics and he coached in four Olympics. And the spirit of the games and, and the spirit of Olympism and the ideals of Olympism were instilled in me very early on. So my uh, motivation, as I explained before, was never one driven by becoming a professional. It was always one about going to the Olympics. The highest honor I had as a youngster was to pull on a green and gold jersey and play for your country and compete at the Olympic Games. So th these incredible opportunities came along um, and scholarship opportunities came along in those uh, earlier years. But unlike it is today, we didn't have the internet. We didn't. I wasn't seeing a lot of college games. Well, there wasn't. I'd get a a Sports Illustrated that was 18 months old, and this would be and read about you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson 18 months after it happened, you know, so, so it wasn't like I had a full comprehension or understanding of what college basketball could do and what it could mean. Yeah. I knew about college basketball, but dad would get the back in those days, eight millimeter film wouldn't even have sound, but friends of his and we get the projector out and watch college games. You're, you're, on date, film. you're dating yourself. You're dating yourself. <laughs> Wait, you I know that's, but that's, that's the world I lived in. So um, so I never really got to uh, see too much of it. But what happened was in, in 1986, it was actually, it wasn't our national team, it was our club team that went on this tour of the Big East. And um, PJ and John Carroll, straight after we played uh, against um, Seton Hall, and my dad was really close friends with PJ's dad. Back when PJ's dad was with the NIT, they'd run some exchange programs with basketball teams. And, and my dad knew PJ, but knew, knew PJ's dad a, a whole lot better. So there was, there was this friendship. And I remember PJ himself came to our game at, at when we played St. John's. We played Seton Hall was our very last game of that tour. And PJ came in the locker room and met, didn't talk about anything other than just, hey, going sort of friends and with his dad. And then it was not until after, straight after the game against Seton Hall, they had, we played at the old ice hockey stadium that yeah, game. Yeah, the South Mountain. That's right. Yeah, because yeah, because Walsh Arena, I think, was getting renovated. So now, we now, played now we're really getting old, Andrew. You to see the, the facilities at Walsh so you wouldn't say no, that's why. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. And then, and then afterwards, they, that um, perhaps because of PJ, Seton Hall showed tremendous hospitality. There was a, 
a little bar, I think it was, not far from the, the hockey facility. And, and both teams went back there. They put on some food. And it, that was the straight, literally an hour or so after the game when we're there tucking into some pies and hot dogs or whatever it was we were doing, John Carroll and PJ sat me down and said, mate, we want you to come and play at Seton Hall. And, and I was really keen. I, I loved my experience of playing against all the Big East teams. And back then, the Big East was, was the league. You know, this physical, strong league with all the powerful teams. So I wanted to do it, but it just didn't fit in with my desire to, to uh, want to go to the 1988 Seoul Olympic Games. So I said, yeah, I'm really interested and didn't think anything else of it, of it. But then John Carroll, the assistant coach, was the man that was relentless. For a little over two years, uh, barely a week would go by and two seasons passed that season and the next one. And I still said, mate, I'll, I'm focusing on the Olympics. I can't do it. But he would jump on the phone and he could talk on the bottom of the ocean with a mouthful of marbles. <laughs> Mate, he would just talk and yakking away. And and, and um, eventually, because of the Seoul Olympic Games, our NBL season started earlier in 1988. And then it was going back to its regular time in 1989, which is your summer, but our winner. We used to play in our, our winner. And there was this big window of opportunity and eventually I was struck because of my commitments with the Olympic team, I was struggling with my, to finish my degree. So I thought, beauty, here's a way I can go over and, and, um, and play some basketball at a really high level, play for a great coach. And uh, that's how it all came together. I want to know what the long distance phone bill was back then. <laughs> oh, mate, it was horrific. That's what my, my um, daughter went and played at Fresno. And my son is just a few days ago left. He's gone to play at a division two school in St. Louis. And, and I keep telling him about when I was there, we had to do things like, and the young folk don't even understand this concept write a letter and put a stamp on it. <laughs> and then two weeks later, you get a letter. And they look at your cockeyed going, you're kidding, aren't you? You turn it up. This is ridiculous. But um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was hard. And and a, a four-minute, you needed a second mortgage to have a five-minute international <laughs> phone call. It was ridiculous. So it was uh, a lot harder to stay in touch with people back home than it is these days. Well, we're going to have to send a little, uh, you know, gift basket to John Carroll to say thank you, right? So you, you come to Seton Hall in 88, 89. But what caught my interest when I was kind of doing the research is I found an interview that you did with Deadspin back in 2017. And in yeah. that interview, uh, the also Seton Hall athletic director, Larry Keating, is quoted as saying, hey, for the first like 10 days, he literally never shot the ball in practice. And then Keating <laughs> goes to add on, he goes, about a week in, PJ pulls him aside and goes, Andrew, what the hell are you doing? You're the best shooter yeah. on the team and maybe the best shooter in the country. You got to shoot the ball. How does a player that comes off scoring 44 points a game prior shows up and doesn't take a shot for a week and a half? Well, I was when I was going there, I was a little older. I'd already been to two Olympic Games and had these experiences. And it's about trying to establish your role. And this team that I was coming into, they had bona fide stars and, and veterans of that. They had veteran seniors, you know, Ramon Ramos, John Morton, Gerald Green, Darrell Walker, and um, uh, Michael Cooper was a junior, I think, at the time. They had the Nick Kasikis was a, another shooter that was there. And for me, it was about just trying to fit in and say, hey, I'm not here to rain on anyone's parade. I'm here to do what I'm asked to do and to help. 
And and I went in there with a, with a, an attitude to say, well, this is not about me. This is not about me putting up numbers. It's not about me trying to use this as a, a vehicle to some greener pastures. This is about me appreciating the opportunity to get a, a, a few semesters of school out the way. It's about me trying to say, hey, I want to buy in and learn from you guys. You guys going to teach me. Um, and I, it, was a, it was a filling out process where I just had to, to find my way. And it, it was not easy because uh, they had to get accustomed to me. I had to get accustomed to them. And going in there and trying to jack up 20 shots a game, that, that, that was, to me, my own mind. And I think it was that level of maturity of being a little older that that um, clearly it was, a, it was a, a good way to go about it because I didn't want anyone to be fearful of me or think that I'm, I'm coming in to take away opportunities. It was more as to, to, hey, I'll help you guys out where you feel I can help out. Well, you were talking about getting accustomed and, and probably the biggest thing to get accustomed to at Seton Hall is P.J. Carlissimo himself. Now, yeah. we've oh talked to a, a, no, a number of his former players and the stories are always... Uh, interesting, but usually players that are recruited from this country by the coach have an idea what to expect because they've seen them on TV and they've seen them in person. But for you in the late 80s, especially, this is different. Information in yeah. travel, like you mentioned previously. So what was your first impression of PJ as the coach? Not as your father's friend, <laughs> but as the coach. And what was your dynamic with him like throughout the season? Yeah, well, he... he every one of his players is his, his own son. That's how I felt. And, and, and he had this such a warm heart and wore his heart on his sleeve and, 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 and was unashamed of expressing his emotions. And those emotions included a large spectrum of emotions. And the first impression was, um, hang on a second. Where's this nice sweet guy that's been saying all these nice things to me during the recruiting process? <laughs> and then we're stepping on court and we've got this this hard uh, disciplinarian. It was like, geez, this is a little different. <laughs> but but I played, I'd had some experience with different coaches with the national team and of course played with my dad. So I'd and through the junior ranks, play with a bunch of different coaches and different styles. So it wasn't I didn't know specifically what his coaching style and technique was, but um, but I was aware that that uh, there'd been some roller coasters about how he's been received at Seton Hall. Uh, I, I was aware that of his um, of his family and his dad, and although I didn't know him all that well, if my dad said, "Hey, these people are good people," say no more. I didn't need to be told twice. So I knew that, that, that the approach that he was taking was for a purpose. It was a little confronting at first, but it, it very quickly you get to a stage where you appreciate that there is a, this is not just some silly rant he's going on. It's there to, to try and get the, the absolute very best out of us. And, you know, it was helpful too, because PJ had come in and, and at training and say and scream and, do different things. Um, but it was also helpful when you see the responses of the guys that have been around him a long time. Gerald, Ramon, John, th they would come up after and you'd sort of be in a bit of shock and they'd be like, no, nah, mate, you don't have to worry about that. He, <laughs> he, understand there's a method to the madness. 
this is this is all good. And um, through it all, I learned a lot from him. And I think that I had, uh, as I've gone on to play and and, and coach, I th- always try to think back to to, to my time it's with PJ and, and how he teached and how he coached. And um, he was very very influential for me. And and I'm incredibly grateful for um, for having that experience with him. So last summer we talked to Mark Bryant and. His nickname yeah. was Blankety Blank Double O. Yes. <laughs> Earlier this summer, we had Adrian Griffin on, and he was yeah. F and A G. Yeah. So, what was your nickname, Andrew? Well, for me, he, and you're right. He gives everyone a nickname. <laughs> everyone has his nickname, and he is a he has got he's some sort of savant genius when it comes to remember people's names. That's one of the things that sticks out with PJ. Mate, we'll be driving into the car park at St. John's and there'll be some security guard and you go, oh, g'day, Bazza. Hey, Barry, how you going? Uh, Jeff, I mean, he knows everyone's name. It's just a great gift that he has. Um, but for me, when I uh, when I arrived at Seton Hall, I was playing, like I said, in Australia and this, the naming rights sponsor of our league was Hungry Jacks. Now, Hungry Jacks is our Burger King. It's the exact same thing. The but for what there was some um, naming rights issue in Australia many many years ago, and they could they couldn't use the name Burger King, so they called it Hungry Jacks. So all the design, Mark, everything's exactly the same instead of Burger King it says Hungry Jacks. So I was, and they were the sponsor. And believe it or not, uh, as we speak, this year still the sponsors of the um, of the NBL. But, I saw that. But, I saw um, that. I was in there and uh, I had this hungry NBL Hungry Jacks T-shirt on, and he was looking at what the hell Hungry. So he said Jack. So from then on, he called me Jack. I don't know if he ever called me Andrew. It was Jack. Jack, what are you doing? Screaming down the sideline. Jack, get your ass back and play some defense. Jack. It was, it was Jack the whole time. Uh, that was my nickname that he that he gave me. So and then all the guys they call me Jack. Like if um, Pookie Whittington called me up, I uh, probably. Four weeks ago, five weeks ago, to got entrepreneur. He's the ultimate entrepreneur. Pookie Winnington is this entrepreneur that's out there. He's got a million ideas, and he called me up and, "Hey, Jack, what's going on, Jack?" And because I don't hear that, I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's right. They used to call me Jack." So they, most of the guys in the team, would just know me as Jack. Well, with all that emotion, PJ couldn't have been all that angry at the beginning of that year. The team raced yeah. out to a 12-0 start, winning the Great Alaskan Shootout and going undefeated yeah. in non-conference play, which led to that first huge matchup against number five Georgetown in the first yeah. sold-out game at the Meadowlands. Now, you guys ended up winning the game 94-86. to Describe what the atmosphere in that building was like that day. No, it, it was incredible because uh, we've been playing in smaller gyms and yeah, we played in, in, in some of those tournaments that uh, played in bigger gyms and uh, to be in a facility where the overwhelming majority of people are on your side, passionate, emotional, they get caught up, caught up in this wave of Seton Hall. Who the hell is Seton Hall? Half the community didn't seem to know who, the, who, who we were. Um, and now we're getting some attention and it was like this, this little school, no one had picked them to do well that underdog uh, emotion that was uh, surrounding our team was felt in this game. And there was, for me, it was one that I, I can remember a couple of years earlier watching Georgetown on television, 
you know, Georgetown, Villanova, uh, Syracuse, those big schools, they were the ones that, that I knew most about. And for me, this was a personally a historic moment to have this opportunity. So, um, yeah, you get caught up in the, the team goals and what we're trying to achieve. And there was also uh, a desire to say, we're for real. We, we already knew we were for real. But I think there was still just a little question mark. Is this a little bit of fool's gold? Are they really as good as what the, the, their record is indicating right now? And here's a test. Uh, but this was the last, we, we got that win. And from then on, there was no more. Everyone knew that we were legitimate and playing, playing some good basketball, but it was fantastic. The, the emotion, the excitement, and um, to see the reaction of, of the other guys in the team. Now, Georgetown was, it was a weird one because some of these guys have actually, actually had wins. Even when Seton Hall weren't doing great, they had some huge wins in the past over Georgetown. So they, they understood the importance of the game, but to do it in home in front of a packed crowd, the locker room afterwards, the enjoyment there, the smiles on people's faces, and just uh, it was short-lived because PJ certainly snapped us back into it and said, hey, <laughs> but for that fleeting moment, it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> so I got a follow-up question for that game because you even described the, the curiosity of the fan base, the unknown element of how good this team could be. So we understand the tri-state area New York fan that when things are kind of interesting, they show yeah. up for the what if. I, I want to see what's going on with the Seton Hall team. So I guarantee out of the, the sold-out crowd, half of them are probably like there to see Georgetown and Alonzo Mourning more than they're yes. there to see you guys, right? Now, as you guys are pulling away in the second half and they're like, uh-oh, this team is going to knock off number five Georgetown. They're number 10 in the country. They are for real. How does the, yeah. the environment and the crowd get behind the team differently at that point? I, it's incredible. And you, you, um, I wasn't aware of the sporting culture of, like you say, that tri-state area and, and the, what I subsequently come to learn somewhat of a fickle nature of some of the fans. Oh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> <That's> a, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, where, so, so I wasn't aware of, uh, of a lot of those historical things about not just basketball, but sport in general in, in that area. So um, for me, it was more just riding this wave of excitement and, I, I still, one of the, I don't remember a lot of the individual things that I was doing, but one of the things I do remember is knocking down a three ball in that game and the roar and the excitement and then the, the, just the the volume that was there when you made a basket, that shot went in and you could sense this crowd was coming to the realisation that something special is, is taking place. And you you feed off that. It's motivating, and and you wanna you wanna do whatever you can to to make sure you you give yourself as many chances as possible to to have those types of feelings. But uh, as a foreigner, I was trying to still feel my way out with the team and and and, and understand the culture of Seton Hall. And and you knew small school, smaller, relatively smaller program in some senses, and to see the joy and the smiles and the the realization that little brother just went in there and kicked big brother's ass. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And you, you got that, 
instantly a sense that these fans were developing a little bit of swagger. And and I think that PJ growing up in that um, environment, I think as I try to rationalise it, think, well, there's a method to his madness because you can see the way these fans very quickly get caught up in it and that could be to the detriment. And he may be looking at our team and saying, hey, hey, hey that's not, if we're going to have any long-term success, we've got to pull our heads in here a little bit and let's not uh, st- pat ourselves on the back too much. Well, the team does go on to remain in the top 15 for the rest of the year. You guys finished second in the Big East after being picked to finish seventh, by the way. The yeah. record was 26-6. and six. You're heading into the NCAA tournament. But of those six losses, three of them – come at the hands of Syracuse, including, ironically, the very next game after Georgetown, you guys kind of get taken to the woodshed by 24 up at the up at the dome. What was kind of the reason why that team had your number? Yeah, I think that there was some some matchup issues that we had to to, um, to deal with. That The carry dome is a tough place to play. Um, despite PJ's efforts, we might have got a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, put it into cruise control, thinking with we know what's going on here. We got this. Um, but you look back on it, and, and absolutely, Syracuse had our number. I think the, the closest one we got, we, we we got reasonably close when we played them at, at our place at home. You were pretty competitive. Um, you were pretty competitive at the Garden too. I think that was only like a three-point well, loss, right? That's the one. That's the one in that game. There were times I thought, yeah, yeah, we're going to win this. We're going to we're going to win this game, but. They uh, they rolled over the top of us. So, for whatever reason, we weren't we weren't able to um, to deal with them. But it, it, I think it was more to do with just like I said, some of those matchup issues and style of play. That, who, that, that who, who did you get matched up in that game? That front court had Derek Coleman, Billy Owens. Yeah, yeah, who, Billy Owens is a freshman, I think. Um, but it was uh, Steve um, Steve Thompson. Steve Thompson. That was the one I was uh, matched up with. Not a not an elite shooter, but an elite athlete. And, and he causes some problems, you know, defensively, both ends of the floor. Uh, Sherman Douglas was a handful. And the game at, at, at uh, the Meadowlands in down the stretch, I remember he took over. He, he was really strong. They had some good players. So, so it, was no, it was nothing to be ashamed of. It was the, the ass kicking in, in Syracuse was a setback. And to the point where we, we played, I still remember it. I'm thinking, God, we played, got up the next day, went back to New York and we went straight from the airport to Madison Square Garden and because there was this window of a, an hour and a half or two hours where the court wasn't, be, kind of wasn't being used. And we, we, were, we were knackered. We, we were tired. And, and, and I still remember thinking, I'm not sure this is helpful. We've just got our ass kicked. <laughs> and, and PJ's in full PJ mode trying to, trying to get blood out of a stone. And we gave it our best. Um, but that was one of the practice sessions where you're thinking, oh, I don't know whether this is – now, in hindsight, it was. And, mate, that's why he's the genius and I'm sitting here talking to you blokes. But um, uh, that's that's that was one session I wasn't so sure about the merits of. It was my first time at the Garden. It was just uh, sensational to be out on the court and to be a part of it. It was, it was fantastic. Well, we'll stop being negative like Mike likes to be. We'll talk some positivity here. For the second year in a row, the team makes it to the NCAA tournament, this time as a three seed, and you're going to go out west. 
Yeah. You, you had a couple games early on against lower seeded teams that you needed to grind out. You beat Southwest Missouri State and Evansville. But once you got to the Sweet 16, that's when the uh, competition really began to stiffen. Oh, yeah. But that's when the team really started to click. You ended up be having double-digit victories against Indiana and yeah. UNOV to advance to the Final Four. And you scored 16 and 19, respectively, in both wins, shooting 54% from three. And you were named that regional MVP. Now... Was it just your turn to step up on those nights, or did you finally take like a more assertive role on offense? Uh, no, I think it was just uh, the the way in which games panned out and the way in which teams played you. I wasn't on this agenda, like like I said earlier, that that was about me or or what I had to contribute. I felt that I could contribute in a variety of different ways. Believe it or not, contrary to the the narrative around me and my career. Back then, PJ actually had a bit of faith in me on the defensive end. Um, so, so what I was doing, what I was doing on the boards, on the defensive end, all those other, all those other areas, um, they they were just as important. So I wasn't this guy that was just focused on, on scoring. I think it was the game against uh, in that first round, Southwest Missouri State, or it might have been the Evansville game, where. Five minutes to go, scores were tight, and there was a jump ball, and off the jump ball, I knocked down a three. And it was a huge, huge three in the context. Might have only been a couple of minutes to go. In the, to go. In the context of that game, it gave us a little bit of breathing space, and, um, and it was a big, big three. And in that period, that was a big moment because it was recognised as a big three, and you just naturally get some confidence. It, it builds confidence. You, you make one good play it can have a, a big impact. And um, from there we were going and the fact that we were on the road as well, I mean, they're little things that you think, oh, really doesn't make that much difference. Well, for us being together that whole time, we're out in the West, we, we weren't getting caught up in the hype because everywhere we go, no one knew who the hell, where the hell Seton Hall was or who the hell we were. They were Seton Hall. Now, where is Seton Hall? I mean, they had no idea where we were from. That's the thing that's amazed me that, that we, were, we were doing these things and just this curiosity about this, this school. Um, so all those factors combined to made it for a real comfortable experience for me. And we, we were playing some good basketball, but anything that I was doing was absolutely unequivocally based on the system that had been built and the uh, cooperation with my teammates. And, it's, it, and that wasn't just for me. If you look at someone like John Morton, who was our star, he was the same. There were games when he, you know, he was up and his points were up and down. There were, there were games where some people might have looked at him and said, gee, John, you didn't score. But given the roles we were playing and the way in which we were balancing out our team, that wasn't, that really wasn't the criteria for, for, to, to judge a person's performance or contribution to a game. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that people didn't know who you guys were. The running joke from what I remember back then, it was Seton who, not Seton yeah, Hall. That's right. right. And it's that story still carries forward today as being here on the left coast in San Diego, I'll wear a Seton Hall shirt to walk my kid to school and they'll be like, are they any good? Or what conference <laughs> wow. are they in? Wow. And, and I still yeah. get the Seton who, right? Yeah. So as you guys are rolling into the final four to be matched up against, you know, the granddaddy of all teams known nationally in Duke, you're probably still getting that recognition of, oh, these guys can't compete. And right out of the gate, there it is, 26 to 8. 
and everyone's yeah. like, okay, let's shut off the TV and go find something else until the, <laughs> the next semifinal starts. But you guys stage a classic comeback, the largest point turnaround in Final Four history, ends up being a 35-point turnaround. You go on to win the game. You lead the team with 20 points, 16 coming in the second half. Would you say that that was your defining moment as a Pirate? Oh, it was a huge moment. I think that I don't think of my experiences and reflect back on any one particular incident or one particular game. I kind of look at the entire experience in its totality. And um, it's the accumulation of all those moments. And whether they're high profile moments like it was against Duke or some of the things that happens in class or some of the things that, that happens um, with your teammates off court, all those things create this one holistic memory rather than the specific moments. Now, I'm often asked to reflect on specific moments and I love doing it because I cherish them. That They, they mean so much to me. And, and that game against Duke, uh, here in Australia, uh, we, with the pandemic and no sports being played and the NCAA tournament being cancelled, and I'm not lying here, literally for three and a half weeks, literally that game was on every single day on ESPN here in uh, Australia during that during that uh, NCAA tournament week. And it was it was great. And there, 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 there are a lot of young people that, that were there watching it and getting appreciation for Seton Hall and the Final Four and, of course, my involvement. So it was fantastic. Unfortunately... The equal amount of time was the championship game, oh, but but that <laughs> but that um, that that game was a big moment. And the thing that sticks out for me the most for that game was um, Gerald Green. Gerald Green was our hero in that game, in my view. There were some great performances right throughout, but in that moment where we're, we're looking down the barrel and it's not looking good, they've overrun us at the start. Gerald Green was the one that really stepped up and not just in his play, but his leadership, his communication. And as I look back on that game now and and, and you live your life and you go through other sporting experiences and I've been into coaching, all those different things. The thing that sticks out the most is the composure that we had as a team. If you look at the timeouts, if you look at the body language, there was never a, a, a sense that, well, this is desperate. This is desperation. They're cooked. They're a deer in the headlights. You never, you never got that feeling and looking at it. And, yeah, you know, we'd be lying to say there weren't some internal concerns, but there was never a feeling of despair, even when we got down. And I think that that is, a, is an accumulation of the, the body of work you do throughout the course of the season that allows to deal like we did in those incredible moments. Well, I'll tell you, Andrew, that is potentially the greatest Seton Hall game I've ever seen. And personally, I was a 14-year-old kid in Maplewood, and it was right after a CYO game. And there's probably yeah. 50 of us in a Catholic school kitchen watching a 12-inch portable TV <laughs> screaming bloody murder watching that yes. game. But like you said, unfortunately... Two nights later comes the championship game. And you've probably been asked this question a million times, but it is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. So we got to talk about it. The foul. 
Yeah. Now, now, the shame about it is here's this classic basketball game going into overtime, mm. this David and Goliath type story. Mike's going to jump all over that, but it truly was. This small little Catholic school from New Jersey, the Philistines coming across from Michigan. <laughs> and the only thing that's remembered is the non-existent foul call from referee John Clarity on point guard Gerald Green. Yes. Now, I know you've been asked this over and over. What do you think it would have been like had he who shall not be named again not have called that foul and Seton Hall had won that championship. Andrew, before you ask that question, yes. let, let me remind Tom that Seton Hall was the three seed that year. They were only a two-point underdog, and they were second in the Big East. There Mike, was no, they did not have to hold a candle to Michigan Mike going into that game. A, <laughs> Mike was still a St. John's fan down in oh, Marble don't do that. Township. Don't, don't, so don't sell me out like that. Don't sell me out like that. He didn't know anything about it. I was in Maplewood. But, Andrew, once again, apologies for Mike interrupting. No, no. What would it have been like? No, well, it's uh, it's one of those hypotheticals that uh, you, you never really know. But my experience with that at the time was I didn't have that same level of angst about that call as at the time as I do now. And somewhat surprisingly... I never, like I went, we had that game. I never watched that game. I never watched, went back and looked at the game. And it was replayed a little bit on TV, on the news and stuff. But I never, I didn't really give it a, a whole lot of thought. And it wasn't until, when was it? You guys would have seen the the school, was it five or six years ago, did a, a, an anniversary. They put yeah, this band DVD. Of, band of Pirates or something like that, right? Band of Pirates. So they, they wanted to interview me about it. And, and I did the interview and then at the end of that, they sent me the um, the DVD of the the, uh, the program, and I remember checking out the DVD, and looking at it was probably the first time that I almost smashed the television. <laughs> I, I, I was the 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 years, the twenty odd years or whatever it was of this build up, um, of thinking, oh yeah, it's a setback, these things happen, but it was a lot harder to deal with then 20 years later than it was at the time. And uh, you look at it and I don't think that there's any question that it was, it was a, just a bad call that you get at an unfortunately critical moment. Uh, but the other thing, two things that, about that was that referee, what was his name? John Clarity. John Clarity. Uh, it was, that was 89, 1993. We go back and I'm with the um, national team or what might have been another club team tour we, and we're playing college games. He is refereeing one of these exhibition games. And as true as I see today, he came over and he called me over, Andrew, I was there. And I didn't even remember him. He said, I'm the guy that, 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 that called uh, that foul. I just want to let you know I made a mistake. Oh. I made a mistake and it was a bad call. Now, that personifies class because there's not this narcissistic, ego-driven guy that's going to defend it. It would be very hard to defend by in, in anyone's judgment anyway, but to acknowledge it is something that, that stuck with me. And then the other thing that as you go on and you go through life and you mature, uh, 
I cannot be more proud of the way in which PJ, the players, our school, Larry Keating, how in which we handled this setback. It was done with class. It was done respectively to the game, to our opponents. It wasn't carrying on like a two-year-old. It wasn't sucking. It wasn't woe is me. It was a realisation that these things happen in life. If this is the worst thing that's going to happen to you in your life, you have led a spectacularly good life. Uh, and there was this uh, pride that I look back on now as you rationalise and be more mature about it to say that hey, if, if I'm faced with that type of adversity in this emotionally charged uh, sport and I can handle it that way if that happened again, that's what I want to do. I, I want to be able to handle that adversity like... Uh, that was handled back then. Uh, but notwithstanding that, I, I, I do, in that in the last five or six years since seeing that DVD, I do reflect that back on to say, how would it have changed if that didn't happen and we actually had a one? What difference would it have made? And I, maybe it's trying to rationalise it. I come to the conclusion it wouldn't have made any difference. Yeah, we'd have a different ring, but the, it doesn't, doesn't take away from the joy and the experience and the love that I have for the program, the school and the competition. Well, I'm not going to lie. If I was there, I would have been bitching and whining about the ball. <laughs> so, there's just no right. way I would have been able to hold back. There's just no well, way. I was. Well, like I said, I could have smashed the television. I was in dismay and I couldn't sleep for three nights. I handled it way worse 25 years later than I did at the time. You know, at the 10-year anniversary, one of the local cable stations played the game and I called a friend down the street. I remember it. I'm like, hey, put, the put so-and-so channel on because they've got the Seton Hall Michigan game on. And he flips it on and I hear his father in the background say, turn it off. It's only going to get you mad. <laughs> so as the, as the foul call comes up, I call him back and I'm like, there was no foul call. And in the background of the phone call, I hear, I told you to turn the game <laughs> off. When you do watch it, you got to watch it for the little joys of the spectacular performance by John Morton. Uh, I mean, it was, it was one for the, for the ages uh, and I don't, no, if he would ever have had a, a more significant game in his career, it was it was amazing. Unfortunately, we probably don't doesn't get the accolades or the recognition it deserves because of that result. But but it was it was it was something special. And 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 I I'm lucky because I can appreciate the other things that go along with the Final Four uh, experience, not just as a fan where you you know the outcome is is what you're riding on uh, a lot of the times. Whereas I can I, I guess I have the the, uh, the privilege of appreciating some of the other stuff that goes along with it. So unfortunately it seems like Tom's been giving me all the glass half like empty questions during the podcast. No, that's all right. So there are two narratives that I want to address that were stemming from this game. So the first one is, you know, leading up to this contest, you played so well, but on, on offense in the championship game, it, it was probably your poorest performance of the tournament, scoring only five points in yeah. 39 minutes on one of five shooting. So my question is not why did you have a poor game, but why with your ability to score the ball, did you only take five shots on the biggest stage of college basketball? I know mm. you said in other games, that's just kind of the flow of how things played out, but being in that moment and the opportunity to seize the moment, I, we, I think the fans just expected you to kind of carry some of that performance from the regional mm. finals and the Duke game uh, into that championship moment. Yeah, well, like I said, it, this, this game was the accumulation of the entire season's body of work. 
And that's the way. And if you look back on mine or John's or, or many of our players, there were those moments that, that, that you're doing different things. You, the role was there and the way we were built and designed is to, um, is to go with the other options. If, if that's what's happening in a game, don't force it. Don't, don't, don't impose yourself on the offensive end. Impose yourself in other areas. And the, the season that I was playing, the, the way in which the season was and, the, and my role in that team was about was was take what was presented and and, and you do have nights where you, you think back and and you say well well maybe I should have imposed my tried to impose myself uh, a little more but it was consistent with the way in which we were having success throughout the entire season that you sacrifice sometimes it's not your night and and by not your night not that it's not your night that you you don't contribute and play well but it's not your night where we're going to go to you and and, and create those opportunities. But there were many games, oh, oh, maybe not many games, that there was certainly a significant portion of games where I, I only had five or six shots in any in any particular games. It wasn't it wasn't unusual on the sense of the whole season. It was a little unusual based on the previous five games in the tournament, but it was not unusual on the basis of, of what we were doing throughout the course of the season. Did having to cover Glenn Rice that night, I know Glenn was having a great night himself. You know, I locked going... him up. The 36 didn't know. Put the padlock, put the clamps on him. What are you talking about? Just oh, completely dude. blanketed him. See, oh, see, PJ had confidence in your defense. He put you on their best player. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he was, just, he no, was a I, handful, I, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on him. Uh, as it is, we win these games that, yeah, He's a tough player. He's a star and went on to have a great career. And uh, he was a, a big part of their, their success, no doubt about it. And, and yeah, it's, it's not unreasonable to say that he got the better of that battle. I, I, I am extremely accountable for a lot of that. Maybe not all of it, but certainly a lot of it. But, and, and, and yeah, that, that, that was a contributing factor, no doubt about it, to the reason why we weren't able to get over the line. All right, so so let's let's transition a little bit away from the game. The second question stemming from that performance is that only four days later, you actually leave Seton Hall and return to Australia to go back to your professional team, therefore becoming an immediate target for the media and the other fans of other programs to take shots at your intentions for coming to Seton Hall University in the first place. You were labeled as a mercenary, a mm. ringer, a, a yes. hired gun, right? You were yeah. you were the first official real one and done player. Yeah, there were it was a hard hitting article from the New York Times, and then there was even a small investigation into a twenty five thousand uh, dollar placement of funds into a trust fund by your previous yeah. club team, and calling into question your amateur status and everything by the NCAA. Yeah. So, yeah. Andrew, do you mind setting the record straight relative to all these rumors? Speak towards why only one season at Seton Hall was the right fit for you at the time? Well, what was happening is that um, if you, and, and it's really simple and you know, the irony is it is I had to leave to go to school. The <laughs> irony in this is that I had started my degree with at Victoria university back then it was called Footscray Institute of Technology. So I started my degree and the problem I was having is I was missing so much school because of my international commitments. I was going away with the Olympic team. So, but I was a, I was a, a proper university student playing in a country that couldn't give a rat's ass about playing a, a basketball player. 
You went to school here. You know, we weren't playing. Sport was not a part of your reason why you're at school. You're here at school. You're at school to to study. So, so, um, and in fact, there was this process that went that uh, my school before I went to Seton Hall. I wasn't going there unless there was this opportunity to get grades. I was at the the equally important as going for a basketball opportunity was that it was taking me so long to get through my classes here. Here was a chance when in our summertime, I could go overseas, continue to to do a couple of semesters of study and help get my degree. That's one of the ironic things about that. The other ironic thing is, is that our, our school year at university here in Australia starts in, in March, April. So, so that's when we start school. So when we were finishing the semester there, um, we actually planned it so uh, that I'm trying to catch up and, and get credit so I can finish my degree, that I was taking some courses in that second semester that, was, that were going to be able to be completed uh, early and that, that I would be able to do some of the, um, some of the uh, credits offline or some of the, the work required for those credits. So I was there for the vast majority of that semester for those courses, but it was a predetermined thing because I wanted to study. So the ironic thing about it in that there was this big brouhaha about, well, are you here as a hired gun just to play basketball? To me, I'm like, I'm, no, I'm never gonna be able to convince anyone because once you're over there and you understand college basketball and all the conspiracy theories and all the, I was never in a situation that I was going to be able to convince them. But like I said, the, uh, the irony and the, the, the funny thing from my standpoint is like these blokes know they've got no idea. <laughs> they've completely got this cock around the wrong way because if it was not for the school, I wouldn't have been there in the first place. So that was, that was part of it. And I was actually listed as a junior because we were trying to, although my age uh, was going to allow me to, uh, w- wouldn't allow you to, to have a, a senior year, but because of my international commitments of playing at the Olympics, it was felt that uh, it was a reasonable argument to make, put forward that you could get another year. So I was actually going there hopeful of going another year. But because of the getting to the final, because of the scrutiny, because of these questions that were being asked, it was decided that, that hey, we've had a great experience, let's move on. But there was, and, and, and in every one of those, I think it's important, in every one of those uh, investigations, which was detailed, people coming in and interviewing me and talking to me, journalists, the guy from the New York Times did a big piece on it. In all those investigations, it was very, very quickly resolved that there was nothing untoward. So it was, it was, a, it was a disappointing end to it because I wasn't able to go back for another year, but, um, but hopefully it doesn't detract from, from the uh, incredible achievement. Well, let me get you back, get your back here before we move on. That year, because of the Seoul Olympics, the NCAA, NCAA gave all players that participated a special one-year waiver to play that year and not even have to enroll Correct. in the fall classes. So there's you and there's Ramon Ramos, and both of you, with the opportunity not to have to enroll, took no. fall semester classes. Yeah. Right. So I, I went there after, so straight from Seoul, I go there, and they're saying, there, listen, you, you can actually start your classes in the next, which is uh, January or whenever it was that they start. And, and I was like, we, we were, before we even got there, they said, no, mate, if I can't go to class, I'm not staying. 
<laughs> if I can't get these credits, I'm not playing. So, so it was that was the the level of uh, commitment that I had, not just to play basketball, but I, I saw this as an opportunity to uh, a big opportunity to try and get some credits out the way. Well, well, to put a bow on your seat in Hall times, it would have been incredible to see a starting five the following year of Ali Taylor, uh, Terry DeHair, yourself, yeah. Franz Volzi, and uh, Anthony Avent in, in yeah. a, on a team. That would have been a hell of a team. But you went back to Australia, you, you returned to the NBL, and it's just like this litany of wonders that you achieved there. Like we mentioned in the tale of the tape, seven MVP awards. Mm. Um, you know, you go on to finish uh, 15 times first team all NBL. You had your number 10 retired. Your first mm. in career points, three-pointers, assists, just incredible. But which one of these accomplishments means the most to you? Well, you, you are kind of asking me which one of my four kids do I love the most? <laughs> it's it's very very hard to, to to separate them all, and they all mean uh, so much. And, and I put my experience, my Seton Hall experience, alongside any championship that we were able to win here, Australia, um, any other experience that I got playing overseas. It is it it is it is extremely special to me because it it was a transforming experience and and it's one that i'm so grateful that john carroll was a pain in the ass <laughs> determined guy that would just stayed in contact with john in bits and pieces and, and i love him dearly because without his persistence i would never have ended up there and would never have had that experience so it is it is a great experience but uh when I try to rate or prioritize some of my basketball experiences, I go back to a lot of the time my boyhood dreams. And that was always about playing for Australia, pulling on a green and gold jersey and competing at the Olympics. And I had the good fortune to go to five Olympic Games. And the greatest honor I had was in 2000 being awarded the captain of the entire Australian Olympic team, not just the basketball team. But the entire Australian Olympic team, I was considered worthy enough to be the captain. And uh, part of that responsibility is being the captain, you're the flag bearer of the 2000 Olympic Games. Uh, so so though that those moments probably, although I try not to love one kid more than the other, <laughs> but those moments uh, probably mean a little bit more because... You, you, you're accomplishing a goal and fulfilling a boyhood dream. Now, a lot of these accomplishments came along as you played with your father being the coach, correct? Yeah, that's right. Well, he coached me on the club team. Yeah, he did. And in my first Olympics, he was the coach, but not in the next four. Now, for folks that don't know, this is, you know, a family business, as you mentioned. You know, your father hmm. played in three Olympics, coached in four, and that's just a bit of his amazing resume. But uh, how much did it mean to you to have him on the sideline for some of these things? Yeah, it's great. And uh, I think back in now as a, a dad, it means more to me now as a dad with four kids to know how special those things are. To be playing elite level professional sport and to be ex uh, sharing those experiences with y y other family members, it is a very rare and unique privilege. And... Um, 
there were some challenges when I was a youngster because of the cries of nepotism and the the perception by a very very small number of people. But there are some that 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 when they're looking to be critical or, or looking to find explanations, that they will use the fact of privilege and the fact that your dad has an involvement as an explanation for why you might do things. So, but they were they were really small and they dissipated very quickly. It was very early on that that was no longer a problem. So, um, so yeah, I consider it a great privilege and was blessed to, to, to have that guidance throughout, particularly those formative years, but even today as a 55 year old man, I still call on my dad for advice and uh, he generally provides good information and good feedback. Yeah, they're, they're they're calling for nepotism, and then you drop forty four points on their head, and then that changes. <laughs> it. it helps if you can do that. <laughs> All right, Andrew, I want to go back to your passion. You keep on talking about the national team. You keep on talking about the Olympics. Let's let's kind of put that into context a little bit. Five Olympic game appearances, only one of three men's basketball player in the history of the Olympics to ever accomplish that feat. You're in Los Angeles, Seoul. You're in Atlanta, where the team goes five and three and finishes fourth. In Sydney, you already mentioned it, flag bearer, opening ceremony, second all-time in the career of the Olympics in points scored. In a recent interview with ESPN, you said that the moment never gets old talking about the 2000 Sydney Olympics. You specifically Mm -hmm. called it not a a once-in-a-lifetime moment, but Mm once-in-a-century moment, and that you need to accept and embrace it. Can you further mm-hmm. expound upon what that statement means when you're kind of walking out there in the arena with all your fellow constituents from uh, Australia? Yeah, it was said in the context to say in regards to how being a captain and those other responsibilities will impact your performance. And, and it's something that I think all Olympians have to deal with. You're dealing with this incredibly unique uh, situation where you live in this small, small footprint of geography known as the Olympic Village and you're playing this two and a half week long tournament against some of the greatest players in the world. And you, 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 it's high density living. You're sharing the experience with the other players. So it's something that you, that that's not uh, replicated really anywhere else. And there are a lot of people that will provide an opinion on how best you, you deal with those circumstances. And some of them uh, choose to say, for example, well, we're not going to go, we're not going to live in the Olympic village. Now, I don't subscribe to um, trying to normalise this unique opportunity. I subscribe to the theory to say, embrace it. Uh, learn about the ideals of Olympism. Understand the spirit of competition. Embrace these moments. And I personally think that they can help enhance your performance, not detract from it. So it's, it's uh, an incredible privilege that you have I was blessed to get to go to five. Most people only get one chance at it or possibly two. And uh, I think that that what makes it so special. I guess it also, my heart bleeds this year with the postponement of the Olympic Games because I know that not just in basketball sense, but these athletes, they, they, they train to an inch of their lives and they're, they're, they're programmed so specifically. And to, to have that uh, taken away from for 12 months could mean that, and it will mean that some never get the privilege of becoming an Olympian. So it's a, a really prestigious, incredible experience that uh, the lessons that I've learned is to, and I encourage is to embrace it, embrace the Olympic village, embrace uh, the hype that goes along with it and look it in the eye and enjoy it 
rather than trying to find ways to to normalize this incredible experience. Was any of that experience though uh, bittersweet in any way, knowing how competitive you are? I mean, three times you finish in fourth place, yeah. just inches away from getting a medal, and I, I that that had to have kind of just kind of clawed away at you at some point. Yeah, it, it does, um, because the dream was to win a medal, not just to win a medal, win a gold medal. And the closest we came was in Atlanta, where we we um, unfortunately the way that the schedule drew, we had the American team in the um, in the semifinal game, so we missed out on that chance to get to the gold medal game. But we played Lithuania, and in this in the bronze medal game, and and that was our best chance. Uh, the other ones we were there in Seoul, we were just happy to be there. We had no business competing against uh, the United States, Yugoslavia, and the Soviet Union. This is back when. Yugoslavia and Soviet Union were Yugoslavia and Soviet Union. Um, uh, so we had no business, but, but incredible. Beat Spain, incredible just to get to the final four. And then in Sydney, we were one of the the, uh, the favourites and got through, beat, Ru- beat Russia, um, beat Italy in the quarterfinal game. And then unfortunately, uh, France got the better of us and then, in that France game, Luke Longley was our starting centre. He got hurt. He didn't play in the bronze medal game, and, and we we really were never a chance in that game. So, uh, the, the one that that eats at me the most is is Lithuania, the Lithuania game in '96, because that was the one we had our, cl- our best chance. But, but like I said, it, winning is absolutely important, and, and and it's what we do it for, and take nothing away from it, and it's the ultimate. But the Olympics is more than just about putting a medal around your neck and it goes to the ideals and, uh, and the spirit of the game. So if you understand that, and like I said, they were instilled in me a very early age. When you have an appreciation for that, it's a lot easier to live with some of the uh, so-called shortcomings than if you don't appreciate those things. Well, the Olympics weren't the only place where you were able to play for your country. You played in FIBA world championships throughout your career uh, 94, you led all scores with t- almost 24 points per game as you led the Aussies to a fifth-place finish. I mean, four FIBA World Cups, third all-time in points scored. And I can appreciate this. I've still got Polish uncles that talk about the 82 <laughs> World Cup in Mexico City. I yeah. keep telling them it's not happening again. But how important was it for you to help put Australia on the map internationally and to pave the way for others to follow in your footsteps. Yeah, it wasn't something that you're conscious of when you're going through it. You, you, you're more about your teammates, and yeah, you understand the privilege and the obligations and the standards that you need to live up to when you are, are part of the Australian team. But uh, any sort of legacy or those types of thoughts, they weren't prevalent at the time. In hindsight, you look back on it and you think, geez, I think not just me, but that generation that came through did a pretty good job. But you're not, it's not something that you're conscious of uh, at the time, but it's something that you are proud of when you look back on it. So we, we've covered a whole spectrum of your playing days, but post-playing, you've now transitioned uh, for a brief stint into coaching. And yeah. Tom's, all, Tom's all about tale of the tape. So I'm going to read a tale of the tape here. Yeah. Three-time NBL Coach of the Year, two league championships, second most NBL league wins, coached four Olympic national teams, first Australian to be inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. Now, that is not your tale of the tape. No. That is your father's tale of the tape. 
for all the accomplishments that you had on the court as a player, did you ever feel like you were in the shadow of your father in terms of coaching? Uh, no, not really. I, I think that he's, unfortunately, he's been well recognized, but he came through, he was one of the true pioneers of, of our sport and uh, was the one that, that beyond just his involvement as a participant, uh, his contribution as a coach and an administrator is even more significant. The number of venues that have been built, the way in which the sport was propagated throughout the 50s and 60s is almost exclusively because of him. So um, he, he has contributed in, in, in so many different ways. But uh, for me, I, I never felt like there was a comparison that, that needed to be drawn. I, I think that it was one that even when I learned from a very early age, you, you're not going to, you've got to be yourself. You, you take those lessons, but you, you, your own personality, your own style, and I'm sure you draw on all those uh, experiences you have. And, and certainly time playing for my dad were first and foremost right there at the forefront of, of, of the way in which I'm trying to, to coach myself. And that just comes naturally, I assume, because it's probably part of the DNA. But, but um, when you think of Greg Popovich, I got to spend some time with, or PJ, or... Uh, the, the various Olympic coaches that, that I worked under, all of them uh, have an impact and come together to form the way in which you're going to go about it. So you talk about comparisons. Recently, Steve Nash was criticized for not having the requisite level of experience required to take on the role of becoming the Nets' new head coach, right? He, he, had, he had some you know, involvement with the Golden State Warriors, and he's been working yeah. behind the scenes. And I kind of find that was similar to you because you had been involved, but you hadn't really coached in the NBL prior to getting your first job with the Melbourne Tigers. Did you mm. field similar criticism from the Aussie media or – were you, was the legend of Andrew Gaze just that strong that, hey, you can't do any wrong, give him the job? No, it, it was probably more whether or not when I took the Sydney Kings job four years ago, I was there for three years. And um, there was that was probably when there was some smattering of, oh, is, this, is, he, is he suitably prepared and, and, and qualified? But those, those judgments and those comments are coming from you've always got to put in context who's making these types of uh, allegations against people. When it was people that you understand and get their feedback and appreciation from, you, you quickly learn in this era that we live in in social media, that you've, you've got to have really thick skin and you've got to be focused on, on where your attention's going to be going to be directed. Because if you, if you want to, listen to everyone's analysis you, you're going to do your heading so it's it's uh, i was fortunate that the people around me the people internally some of my peers there was ne there was never really any 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 question um but th there is no doubt that some level of experience uh in dealing with the mechanics of coaching is important but when you think of someone like steve nash his international playing career his other work that he's done and of course his NBA career I mean he is extraordinarily well qualified in my judgment to uh, make a good go of it since you put down the clipboard you've been all over the media you've done a ton of work with ESP in Australia I've seen you on NBA Australia on the Facebook shows that yeah. they do you've been a basketball commentator for the NBL and most recently 
You've started the Alley Oop Show podcast <laughs> with former teammate Leonard Copeland. You started it in July, generally covering basketball, but you've had great guests like comedian Nazine Hussein, yeah. hysterical guy. How are you enjoying podcasting? Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's come through a, a different organization, and Leonard and I were teammates for so long, and uh, we just have fun with it. I don't think it's a, a long-term thing. Uh, you know, we do it primarily because we're in lockdown. We're in the house 22 hours a day and you're sitting here and you're trying to think, well, well what can we do? So it's, it's not one that, that I, I, I think I'm going to be the next, what's that famous guy you got, the Josh Rogan or whatever. Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, Josh, whatever he is. I've never heard him, but I hear he's got trillions of people that listen to oh, him. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. is not the goal by any stretch. So I don't know whether we're doing it for, for a whole, once this lockdown finishes, um, the people that put it together, they uh, we've told them, you know, that once it's finished, we may not be as motivated to, to, to jump online and do it. But I enjoy it. I, I love it. It's it's good fun. It's a good way to communicate and um, I have a bit of fun with it. Well, Andrew, before we let our guests go, we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask for you sure. five rapid fire questions. We're hoping like for five rapid fire answers. Don't think too long. Just give us the first thing that pops into your head, okay? I'll try. I'm not very good at doing things quickly, but we'll, we'll see how we go. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. All right. Question number one. Most points scored at any level? Uh, 60. Oh, hang on. Now, if you go back to my real primary school days, I did have 100 in a grade six game. But Damn, there it is. Yeah, All right. Question two. Which team was your biggest arch rival? Biggest ass rival was our crosstown rivals. There was two of them. They were the North Melbourne Giants and the Southeast Melbourne Magic. What was the toughest road environment you've ever played in? Ooh, a lot of them in the States. But here in Australia was playing in against the Illawarra Hawks in the old snake bit. And it was tough because the, the rim was attached to this balcony that was that was where the bar was. And when you go to shoot free throws, all the drunks would start stamping their feet and the ring would actually move. That's a tough environment. If I ask you that same question, Big East, what's the answer? The Big East, uh, Syracuse, uh, the, the dome. Not just because of the fans and the volume of the fans, but that whole dome uh, environment is, is tough. All right. Toughest player that you've ever gone up against? <sighs> There's too many to mention. I suppose because you've just unfortunately rekindled a nightmarish Glenn Rice. <laughs> If it wasn't for you, blokes, so I'm not going to be able to sleep the next three nights just thinking of I've got a twitch going on because of good, Brent Rice. I good can't job, even say Mike. Good job. <laughs> All right. Best but, uh, seat. He was pretty tough. How about the best Seton Hall player you've ever seen? Well, this is this is one that will go that, that, that not a lot of the Seton Hall fans would, would remember. But this, again, I'm showing my age. But Nick Gallus was – Nicky Gallus is a Greek guy. Uh, he was there well before my time. But he went on to be a European sensation – and just when you talk about me scoring, I mean, this bloke could score the ball. Now, he was good. So so that was one that probably meant a little bit more to me because he was an international guy as well. So Nicky Gallus is good. But uh, there's there's been so many. I I love John Morton. I love Andy Navin. They went on to do some great things um, in, in the next level. So that, they've been great as well. All right. Bonus question. Best current Australian player? The best current Australian player would, hmm, I, a lot of people would say Ben Simmons. I, and Ben Simmons is a star. 
he's uh, he's going to be a super super duper star, um, but still learning the game. And, and, and but already, I think he made the NBA third team, all all season team. So he's he's probably the one recognised right now. But I have a soft spot for guys like Joe Ingles and Paddy Mills. They, 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 and and Bainesy, Aaron Baines at Phoenix did, had a great, great season. Um, so we're lucky. We're spoiled here in Australia. We've got some good ones. Congratulations, Andrew. You have walked the plank. Oh, gee, that was easy. I got one last question for you. So you, you mentioned all these guys from Australia and the Olympics just got postponed. Yep. You know, is, is there any frustration that maybe those NBA players don't come back to play in the following 2021 games with the way that the for NBA sure. schedule is going to kind of line up? For sure. And we're so close. These guys got so close at the World Cup and even back in Rio, it was a game. When you think of uh, the call that we copped in uh, 1989, Australia copped those twice. Once and both against Spain. Once against um, uh, in, in Rio with a point up with, I don't know, three seconds. It was free throws again. It was very similar. They called a real dubious one on Patty Mills. Ironically, it was an American ref, but let's not get into that. Um, uh, and then uh, a similar thing happened in uh, Rio, but yeah, in, in sorry, in China last year at the World Cup. But uh, but yeah, I don't think it's just the Australian team though. Depending on when the next NBA season is going to be played, that's going to have a huge impact on what type of Olympic games we have. So Andrew, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us today and answering all our questions. We really appreciate you, and best of luck in everything going forward. No worries. I appreciate it. And uh, let's hope our Pirates do all right this season. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. (laughs) 